Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, buying for Britain, Victoria Mason, buyer for Italy and South Africa at Waitrose on how they select the wines that make the shelves of this great institution. What are the current trends? How do they ethically source? What's happened with packaging? And lots more. Plus, as ever, your IWSC medal-winning recommendations. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Waitrose was named Wine Supermarket of the Year at the IWSC in 2022, and not for the first time, cited for its continually impressive range. So how do they do it? The supermarkets themselves tend to be smaller than many rivals, yet the diversity of wines on the shelves always appears to be far greater. It certainly seems that way anyway. So much so, the choice can be almost overwhelming, and the press tastings are always a treat. Victoria Mason, a year two MW student, has been at Waitrose for almost all of her working life, having started as a graduate trainee. Uh, She's the buyer responsible for Italy and South Africa. And I'm delighted to say she's uh, torn herself away from that uh, to join us on the drinking hour. Uh, Victoria, welcome. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, thank you for coming. I know you're uh, a busy woman. Um, For starters, uh, just um, we bandy about the term wine buyer. But for those listening um, who uh, it sounds obvious, buyer, you buy. um, But clearly it's more complicated than that. So just give us a bit of insight into uh, what you actually do as a wine buyer. Of course. So, uh, as you say, we are as as wine buyers, we're responsible for buying and sourcing all of the wines that you see on Waitrose shelves and on Waitrose seller website. And so, that involves both selecting the wines, but in many cases also working on different versions of blends. So perhaps looking at different components to achieve the style that we're specifically looking for. So actually more involved than the sourcing of lots of other products. Um, then, then of course, agreeing volumes, uh, agreeing. And I think what's quite interesting about buying for a retail, for a retailer or for a supermarket specifically, is your role is almost as much about selling as it is about buying. So once you've bought the wine, you then need to build the plan to sell that wine effectively in stores. So um, every single wine in our range has uh, an annual promotional plan and marketing plan, which sort of progresses period by period. And so it it genuinely, it's not a case of just buying the product and then leaving it to its its own devices. It's very much about how we make that as as interesting and engaging to customers as possible. And obviously that's very different depending on what the wine is, um, what the price point is, and, and it does therefore require a sort of a bespoke or a tailored approach uh, at wine level. Then another part of being a buyer, I mean, for, for, for again, for maybe uniquely to Waitrose is that we have uh, in-store wine specialists in many of our stores. And so communicating and <clears throat> engaging those guys in what we're doing and why we're doing it, new wines on shelves, what they taste like, um, is actually a really important part of our of our role. So we regularly communicate now that we're all really um, familiar with Zoom, we actually use Zoom as a great platform for doing sort of educational spotlights and we did a big session on organic wines just on Tuesday night. So I also see that as being a really important part of my job, communicating to those who are on the sales floor. So yeah, so everything from spreadsheets, financial forecasting, to the more creative aspects of blending, and and then also working on labels and packaging. Uh, it really is sort of almost a kind of complete, um, a full circle from from the, the wine in the bottle to the wine on the shelf. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting you do that 
educational piece because that's often cited when Waitrose wins awards like the uh, IWSC Wine Supermarket of the Year. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, <laughs> then uh, it, it is that those wine specialists, that knowledge that's uh, uh, in, in a lot of the stores, at least, that's there um, is often cited uh, as one of the reasons uh, alongside uh, the others like diversity of range and, and so forth. Um, just just um, on the um, the the blending bit, um, it's quite interesting, uh, as you say, as a, as a buyer in wine, you get a bit more involved in certain of the products <laughs> than other buyers, maybe of, I don't know, butter or milk or whatever. You're, you're actually getting your sort of hands dirty, I suppose. Yes, yes. So for all of our own label wines, so the wines that you'll see with Waitrose uh, uh, brand on the label, they are blended with the buyers, with the winemakers, ideally in situ. Obviously, during the pandemic, we had to adapt um, and I had various Zoom blending sessions, which is quite a little bit more complex than being in the winery and having access to all the tanks. Uh, and it does um, <laughs> it does lead to some quite interesting, you're sort of trying to measure out this, the equivalent amount to the winemaker on Zoom in your in your measuring cylinder. But yeah, so, so usually the process would be sort of post-harvest, get out into the country, um, out into the winery, and, and, and then you have all of the components in front of you. And, you know, generally speaking, we are looking for, it depends at what level, but certainly at the entry level and the mid tier of the range, we're looking for continuity from vintage to vintage. So obviously if it's a style that the customers are used to buying and they love it, we want to try and replicate that as much as we can um, in the following vintage, uh, which is not always easy. Um, and obviously that's quite different, for example, to the fine wine end of the spectrum where vintage variation is, is one of the joys of fine wine. But it, it's really important if a customer's picking up a wine on the shelf at six pounds, seven pounds or 10 pounds, that they know what they're getting and that it, it, it delivers um, the style and the quality that they're expecting. So so that's why we that's why we are involved in that blending. And, you know, it's obviously it's one of the most uh, interesting parts of the jobs, uh, but it's also where we can truly make, you know, we can ensure that the wines on shelves are bespoke to us and they do offer a point of difference. And it does go beyond on own label. There are lots of wines which are exclusive in the range, which we are heavily involved in selecting and, you know, just looking at what's the level of oaking or in a recent new launch of a, of a skin contact orange wine, I was looking very closely at what percentage of skin contact wine we put into that final blend to achieve a style that was approachable but still definitely have uh, definitely of its um of its category of its orange wine category as it were yeah it's, it's a hugely uh, interesting enjoyable and also challenging part of the job how did you get into buying because i mean i've always been fascinated by the way retail works but um i i've never gone down that uh, particular route but i've always loved uh, reading about it and, and hearing about it um was it something uh, that always appealed to you? Um, it really wasn't on the radar um, when I was younger, no. And it, it kind of very much, as you mentioned, I, I, I came into HOs via the, the graduate scheme, which when I joined was a retail management scheme. So my first three years in, in the business were were spent in central London shops um, uh, running Waitrose stores. And I think uh, as you know, when you spend a lot of time on the shop floor, you sort of, you know, whether it's putting products on shelves, whether it's, uh, you know, looking at the promotions, looking at what the new launches are, you spend quite a lot of time thinking about the people who are making those decisions of choosing what's going on our shelves. And obviously, Waitrose's range across across the the shop, the the food range is 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 generally speaking really interesting and exciting. And um, so I sort of just started to become quite intrigued about the buyers, the people behind those products, what they did and how they did it. Um, and at the time that I was in store, Waitrose had a trainee buyer scheme, so there was a quite a nice way to get into buying if you didn't have any buying experience. And so that's the route that I pursued. And, and I wasn't sure whether I would love it because I loved the sort of dynamic environment of, of retail and talking to customers and kind of being in the thick of it. Um, so initially I took a secondment as a trainee buyer. And when that worked out and I, I loved it, then I, I sort of stayed stayed where I was, so to speak. Yeah. And you've bought some interesting things. Um, uh, you bought initially uh, looking at your uh, CV, uh, World Foods, um, and then, um, I, I'm quite envious of this, Garden Plants as well. Could you, in theory, as a buyer, buy anything? So, uh, yeah, retail buyers, supermarket buyers are, are definitely expected to be agile and to be able to move from category to category. And, and there's, you know, there's, there's, you get a lot of, you have a very different range of experience buying, for example, an ambient category compared to a fresh category, different challenges, um, different supply chains. 
so I would say most retailers and, and waitresses too would work on the basis that buyers would move categories every few years to keep that kind of freshness and to also, you know, for their own professional development. Where it is somewhat different is uh is wine is wine uh, being such a specialist category? Um, so Waitrose's wine buying team is made up of uh, of buyers with huge, well, many years of industry experience. Um, a number of whom are masters of wine. I think we have four masters of wine now, and three three uh, of us are working towards our master of wine. So um, I really wouldn't, it would not be expected for any one of Waitrose's wine buyers to, to move to buying a different area, uh, unless of course they they had a burning desire to do so. But um, no, I, I think once you're in wine, you've invested so much in your own learning and your own uh, your own knowledge there, it, it's it's very unusual that you would kind of move out and, be, and, and, and move into another buying area. Yeah, I mean, presumably, you know, uh, Waitrose is also investing in you in the MW and you, it'd be rather odd to move you to frozen foods or something wouldn't it? Uh, with uh, with that that knowledge um, but plants interestingly that knowledge of horticulture I, I know you were if you hadn't gone into wine you might have gone into you know garden stuff presumably that knowledge of plants actually is not unhelpful when it comes to uh, to, to growing grapes absolutely i i think one of the things that, that well one of the obvious things in working in, in an area of, of horticulture working in fresh produce is obviously you're working with an agricultural product and and particularly in garden plants which is it's so seasonal the the the, the kind of the moment of flowering is over in a couple of weeks so if you don't get that product into the stores just at that right time then then it's kind of lost because it's such an impulse if well if you're dealing with a flowering a flowering plant so i think that that working with an agricultural product and spending much of my time um we source mainly from british growers so at least one day a week would be out on the plant nurseries uh, in chichester or in herefordshire um so then transitioning across to wine which is of course also an agricultural product which is very much at the mercy of the weather it was it was yeah it was it was kind of more seamless than 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 you might think um, and so my very first buying trip as a wine buyer was in the summer of 2016. Um, and at that point, I was responsible for the Loire, uh, amongst other areas. And so my first buying trip was actually, it was, not, it was quite a sad buying trip because it was going out to look at the extent of the frost damage from sort of the end of April 2016. So we, we were out there in the summer trying to understand the damage to the vines. And it was also a really heavy mildew season so again looking at the mildew looking at the just looking at the health of the plants and I can remember thinking this is this is really very similar to what I was doing in horticulture obviously the end product is very different but in terms of understanding um the challenges of growing vines of uh, and on all of the perils that that sort of beset with I think that that sort of the, the three years I was working in horticulture prepared me really well for that mm, I bet uh, what about wine because you're determined enough to be, some would say mad enough, uh, to be undertaking the uh, extraordinarily rigorous Master of Wine programme. And I don't know how you do it, and you and your colleagues, but uh, anyway, it's so tough. Was wine always a passion for you? It's, uh, I, I feel as though I don't have that sort of romantic story of, of, um, of yeah, wine being like a lifelong passion. It wasn't, I, I, I didn't grow up tasting or drinking great wines. That wasn't, um, you know, my, my parents or my family didn't have a cellar. So, um, but it was something that came very much sort of later. I, I can remember, I can remember though, sort of family holidays was the end of my teens. I can remember a couple of wine tasting trips. One, one in Tuscany particularly stands out, um, you know, where I knew absolutely nothing. I, I probably wouldn't even have known what great variety we were tasting. Um, but there was some Something in that there was there was like the first seeds of, of fascination sort of emerging there, and 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 I think genuinely it was it was being on the shop floor in Waitrose and spending a lot of time on the shop floor. I just found myself gravitating towards the wine department. Um, I love to read the, the back the back of bottles and I chat to whoever our specialist that was in that day, and and I, it just became something I can't, almost this combination of like the taste and sensory appreciation and then the the knowledge of how how it's come to taste the way it does and that kind of 
academic pursuit of knowledge. Those two things really, really interested me. And um, and as soon as well, as soon as I was out of stores and working more regular hours in head office, I started. I I, I embarked on an introduction to wine course at Berry Brothers actually, uh, which was an amazing course. I think it was just six weeks, an evening course, um, with Rebecca Lamont running it, and who she's totally inspiring, and she just had me hooked. And at that point, so I almost kind of came to it through sort of education in a way and and then I just had to I had to go on I had to start looking at my WSET and and started to visit vineyards and wineries and and it sort of happened like like that but there there was no sort of defining there was no one one bottle of wine which sort of was the epiphany moment it was just a gradual building up of of fascination and and and, and immersion in it basically yeah we don't have to have an epiphany actually (laughs) I think you know some some of us do some of us don't Um, I used to be a Saturday boy at Woolworths actually so um and I uh, found myself uh, graduating towards the pick and mix department so it's (laughs) it's a wonder I didn't have a career in pick and mix uh to to be honest if uh, if that's what uh, happened to you with the wine department um anyway you've also um you've worked to harvest or two haven't you as well yes yes so um basically i wanted to sort of learn as much about wine from every aspect you know with practical i didn't want it just to be book knowledge and, and theory knowledge so uh basically my first opportunity which was the 2017 harvest uh, in South Africa. So I went on my first buying trip to South Africa and then I extended that trip with holiday to, to work harvest at Rustenburg and Stellenbosch. Um, so I didn't do the full harvest. I couldn't quite take off that much time, but I was there in that sort of middle block of weeks, which meant that I got to work with both white grape varieties and red grape varieties. So I saw the Chenin and the Chardonnay and the Sauvignon come in um, and did many, many pump overs on Merlot and Malbec, um, but it was a bit too early for the Cabernet um, for the Cabernet Sauvignon. So that was just, that was sort of right at the beginning, that was in the first year of my wine buying career, as it were. So it gave me such a good grounding in understanding just what goes into a bottle of wine and and just all of those terms that you're learning as you're doing your studies that, that don't actually mean anything until you're sort of hanging over a tank and, you know, doing the pump over. Um, mm. And it was just the most amazing experience. I mean, I, I basically was staying just a stone's throw away from the winery, woke up every morning to the view of the Siemensberg mountain, which I know you know is so, so oh, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was very inspiring. And at that point, I think South Africa was like, I fell in love with South Africa and there was no going back from that. Well, that brings us neatly to uh, talking about one of your two uh, buying areas. Uh, your buying decisions currently focused, as I mentioned in the introduction on South Africa and Italy. So let's take South Africa first. And I know, um, having travelled with you, as you referenced, um, you're bubbling with um, enthusiasm. Well, you're bubbling with enthusiasm generally, actually, but you're bubbling with passion, really, for South Africa and its wines. So tell us why. <laughs> um, so I think, I think first and foremost, I, I love the energy of the South African wine industry. I, I, I have and this, this sort of sense of this un, like inevitable kind of forward motion and progression. I just feel like they are, there's, there's this incredible collaborative spirit and, and winemakers and, and growers are, are, are working together to move things forward. And if you think about how far the industry has come in just the last it was 26 years, basically, until the South Africa opened up to the world again, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's almost incomprehensible it's developed so far. And obviously I don't have the context of, I wasn't visiting South Africa in the early 2000s and tasting wine at that point, but but just in the time, just in the in the in this over six years that I've been working with South Africa, I've just seen so much change, um, both in terms of uh, both uh, from a quality perspective, from an understanding of their terroir, from an understanding of what great variety works best in which region, um, and also there's this kind of uh, there's a spirit of. I guess this is true in general for this for the new world, but there's this kind of spirit of experimentalism of this uh, this desire to to try to not be not being afraid of trying and failing and 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 trying again and 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 experimentation with styles with approaches to winemaking a real focus on farming as 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 sustainably as possible and all of that kind of just comes together to to for me to make South Africa. Um, 
just yeah just irresistible and then from a from a and that's that's the industry in the country um i think from a, a wine perspective in terms of what what's actually in our glasses i and this could be said of other countries of course there is so much diversity both in terms of style and in terms of sight expression uh i think what's interesting if we put south africa in the context of um of, of the other new world countries there's perhaps not as much focus on sort of fruit fruit ripeness you know if you think of california and australia it's it's very much about exuberant um uh sweet fruit um there are some south african styles obviously that 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 have that but i think that there's more of an emphasis on on structure and maybe on maybe on savoriness maybe on that elusive thing that we call minerality um again that's a generalization but i i think that the 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 sort of cliche that south africa has one foot in the old world and one foot in the new world you know there is some truth in that cliche and it, it does it does it does express itself in many of the wines. Um, so I think, yeah, there's really something, there's really something for everyone. If you do prefer bigger, bolder, fruitier styles, there are those styles, but then there are the much, much more restrained and elegant mineral styles. And yeah, it, it's just, it's very, very exciting. And I know that you've tasted a lot of South African wines and many of them with me, and I'm sure that you, you found that as well. Oh yeah. And what always bowls me over uh, we don't know the price when we're judging the wines, of course, at the IWSC. But as a consumer, when I taste a wine and then I look at the price of a wine from South Africa, I'm just bowled over uh, by um, the value. So not necessarily value is sometimes misunderstood. Mm. People think cheap uh, when you say value. And I don't mean that. You know, value is what you get for your money. And what you get for your money from South Africa is exceptional, isn't it? Absolutely. I almost um, I almost take that for granted. You know, I'm so close to it. I almost take that for granted. But you, you're absolutely right to bring that out. I think that it is, uh, there's a, uh, if you think about, uh, at the end of the day, I'm working in the supermarket sector of the business and there's a real, real sweet spot between 10 and 15 pounds of what South Africa can deliver. I almost feel that that quality level would be would be nearly double from other countries, um, and and that's that's really great for the consumer because if they're just starting to, you know, they're starting to trade up, they're starting to spend a little more on a bottle, what they can get from from a twelve or thirteen pound bottle of South Africa wine is is really exceptional, as you say. Mm, definitely, South Africa's wine industry has had a very tough time uh, for all sorts of reasons, but particularly during the pandemic, hasn't it? Yes. Uh, South Africa, I, I think it's probably fair to say South Africa's wine industry was was the most affected by um, by the pand- pandemic. And, and that was in relation to government restrictions um, that were put in place for, for various reasons and, 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 you know, essentially to manage the impact on the hospitals. But we won't go into the politics of it. I, I, I think so effectively how that manifested itself for the uh, South African wine industry, there was a period of uh, where there was a complete export ban, so no South African wine could leave the country. And that was very early on in 2020, spring 2020. So we had five weeks where we couldn't ship out of South Africa. Um, and then there were a series of domestic uh, sale, uh, d- domestic alcohol sales bans. So I think there were four, uh, there may have been five, I lose count now. But all of that added up to, uh, well, a significant impact on, on the South African wine industry's ability to sell their wines. And, and some of the producers are much more focused on the domestic market than on the export market. Some of the producers, obviously, much more focused on the untrade and on the tourism element, and 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 that was that was incredibly hard in in terms of what it meant for em- employment um, uh, as well. So yeah, it was it was a it was a rough couple of years, without a doubt. Of course, uh, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of of livelihoods um, depend on on the wine industry uh, in South Africa. Um, You were though, uh, to an extent at least, um, able to do uh, at least a little to help uh, Waitrose, weren't you? Yes, so we tried, well, as you say, it it was kind of a drop in the ocean, but what we wanted to do was raise as much awareness basically about South African wine and what was going on in South Africa um, during 2020 and 2021. So we ran a number of initiatives um, which were received so well. I think more, you know, there was much kind of greater engagement than we even expected. So firstly in 2020, we simply did um, a limited edition support South Africa wine case um, through our website Waitrose Cellar, uh, which, you know, in so doing, just trying to shine a spotlight on South Africa 
African wine. And we very much focused on celebrating South African wine rather than rather than dwelling on what the situation was um, was currently in the country. And and then and that was so successful that we we basically sold out of that within I think it was something ridiculous like a day. So we were hastily packing more more cases. Um, and Waitrose funded that promotion. So it was a way to drive sales, but in, in really just to create engagement and awareness. We repeated that then later, I think it was at the beginning of 2021 when they were in yet another lockdown, another um, sales ban, sorry. Uh, and then in the summer of 2021, uh, we hosted a big virtual uh, South Africa taste along for our customers, so free to attend. Um, uh, and I, I, I sort of led that and featured uh, the winemakers from Great Heart, so Gaynor Fredericks, who's the winemaker at Great Heart, and um, the new co-ownership business uh, formed by the Mullineaux, then Johan Reinecker of Reinecker Wines, David Nevo of Cedarberg, and we tasted through six wonderful South African wines, all showing really different styles and different price points, and um, and just yeah, just trying to enthuse and inspire customers uh, about about the South African wine industry. And it really it, it's difficult to say because there were lots of other factors at play last year, but it really seemed to work. Uh, it was ref it's reflected in the sales figures. We had a, a record breaking year for South Africa, and there seemed to be a halo effect. So there seemed to be this greater this kind of greater interest in South Africa and people buying into wines that weren't featured in the tastings or in the cases, but just exploring a bit more. Um, and some great like verbatim customer feedback about the fact that they wouldn't usually think to buy wine from South Africa. So I, yeah, in a small way that that sort of helps. And I think it just also, it, it kept that morale and it, it made us feel like we were in something together, both Waitrose and our South African producers, it, you know, they didn't feel alone and isolated. So yeah, mm. it was, it was great it was a great thing to do it really was and it, i remember it well i remember that case selling out very rapidly in in the, the first um, lockdown in, in 2020 and there was so much at the time uh, that was so awful uh, during the pandemic it was uh, really lovely to seize those uh, those moments that were were positive and actually if your sales have, have gone up then obviously it's it has had that halo effect as well uh, and i'm sure it's so easy to understand that because uh, just that value point again you know people discovering that so how important are um, things like um, the fair trade scheme um, and what can you do uh, particularly with uh, a country like south africa where it's very pertinent uh, what can you do to make sure that you're buying ethically yeah so i think Oh, well, first of all, eth ethical sourcing is a is a, at the heart of how Waitrose buy, and and so the commercial team, so that's us as the buyers, work really closely with our technical teams to ensure compliance with our ethical policies. Which I, you know, I won't go into the detail of. There's there's a lot of detail there, but um, as you say, South Africa is 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 quite different than than potentially other other countries that we're sourcing wine from, and fair trade fair trade is one part it's an important part um but in a in a bigger picture of ensuring worker welfare so i do buy some fair trade certified wines uh, our waitrose own label blueprint wines um the chenin blanc and pinotage come from Stellan rust and they're fair trade certified uh we also but, but then there are many other approaches that that i have so um and, and it, unique to Waitrose is the Waitrose Foundation, which you um, which you may know about. It's been going for, I think, um, close to 20 years now, uh, and it covers uh, fresh produce, uh, horticulture and wine. And it's basically about, so every year we reinvest a percentage of annual retail sales. Um, and that, that reinvestment, the lion's share of it comes from Waitrose, but some of it from the supplier as well. And that goes back into the workers um, and their communities. So in South Africa, we work. Cedarberg is our is our Waitrose Foundation farm. And um, from a wine perspective, so I have two wines from them: um, Waitrose Number One Shannon and Waitrose Number One Syrah. And 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 over the years, so it's 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 a while since I've been to Cedarberg. Um, it's nearly three years now. But over the years, the projects that have come out of the foundation have been as diverse as a new football fit a new football pitch for the school children and for the adults I'm sure um, uh, and a new health clinic because Cedarberg is really quite remote I mean it, it is it is the Cedarberg wilderness that it's it's pretty difficult you know the, the nearest clinic would have been an hour away so there's a health clinic on site for the workers um, and 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 so that that's a way of really really tangibly giving back um, in terms of sales every year and and then 
when making buying decisions so those are two kind of own label projects which waitrues are very heavily involved in but obviously i buy a lot of wines which are not own label and so when when making those decisions um obviously visiting and being that in person and understanding how everything is working and meeting some of the workers as well is really important um uh, and 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 i would say is is right at the center of the buying decisions that I make making in terms of the new producers I've brought onto the portfolio over the, the last few years. Um, one of the most exciting launches from my perspective and from an ethical perspective for, for, of, of the last couple of years um, was uh, the launch of Great Heart Wines. Uh, so we launched these wines in Waitrose last uh, March, um, a, a red blend from the Swartland and a Swartland Shenin. Um, so Great Heart Wines is the new uh, company set up by Chris and Andrea Mullineux, um, and it is basically entirely co-owned by its workers. So once the worker has been uh, has been working there for two years, they own a share of that business and all the profits go to the to the to those co-workers. Um, and obviously, given Waitrose as part of the John Lewis partnership, we are all co-owners uh, of our business that had so that that worked on so many levels and and it just speaking to the speaking to the team speaking to the workers it means so much for them and it's a project that almost was born out of it was almost it was born out of the pandemic i think chris and andrea had been thinking about it for a long time um but then just how bad things got during the pandemic really really sort of spurred them into action as to how they could do something different um so, so that that is just one aspect. And there's, there's, that's just one story, David. There are so many different stories of of all the different producers that we're working with. That then it may not be fair trade, but what they're doing around education, around giving the workers housing. You know, Rainica is another great example with their Cornerstone project, where all the proceeds go back into the workers. Um, there's just so much great work being done there, which we often don't see. Um, and that's part of when I talked about the kind of progression of the wine industry. Um, there is obviously more to do, and that's it's not to be complacent, but there is this. Great great push forward um, in South Africa at the moment, which is which is 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 brilliant and it's brilliant to be a part of. Mm, I bet. And uh, it's worth saying, uh, I remember tasting those Great Heart wines at the press tasting last year. They're really knockout wines. I remember tasting the the red blend. Uh, we were sat because of COVID at, at, at little tables, almost like an exam, actually, uh, with, with social distancing and, and being served. It was all rather civilised, actually. And um, uh, I was next to Jamie Good, actually, who, who's, um, you know, got a very, very famously good palate. And, and he really loved that um, uh, red blend, as did I. Uh, I remember us uh, sort of both happening to taste it at the time, same time and looking across and nodding approvingly. But um, what, um, what should we be looking looking for across the board, not just in your or your range, but if we're, uh, let's say someone has developed an enthusiasm for South Africa, uh, perhaps as a result of that halo effect, um, what should we be looking out for? What's new, exciting, interesting, different? Well, I'm obviously going to start with Chenin Blanc because uh, it's one of my favourite grape varieties and it is it has become South Africa's uh, calling card from a white wine perspective. Um, and and, and I, But I think the reason why I, I would... Well, the reason why I'd signpost Chenin Blanc is 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 actually it, it, it in itself embodies the sheer diversity of South Africa. So there is there is a, every style for for a kind of every palette, whether it's a really zesty, fruit driven, unoaked styles, or those much more textured, concentrated, old vine expressions. Um, you know, we had that fantastic old vine tasting when, when we were out there with the IWSC. There is, there is there's sort of everything um, in between as well. So I think Shannon is, it, I mean, truly, obviously, there is more Shannon planted in South Africa than anywhere else. And it really has, um, not to compare uh, South African Shannon with Loire Shannon, but, but South African Shannon has really kind of created its own, its, its own, um, it's become its own genre i think and 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 there is so much it, it it's such a great great for expressing terroir so we've got the great single vineyard wines of evan sardi we there is so much there and it, it appeals to the fine wine lover as well as to sort of more the everyday drinker depending on which style you tap into 
Um, the other thing from a white wine perspective, perspective, I uh, so sort of red Rome blends have long been um, long been popular and, and and very good from South Africa. But my my tip would be to to seek out those white Rome blends. Obviously, a bit more niche uh, as a category. But, but really, really excelling. So quite often there will be a Shenin component to those white Rome blends, but not always. Um, but you've got some fantastic Grenache Blancs, lesser less volumes, but still volumes of Marsan and Roussan. And, and, and these are wines which I, I think almost kind of they go beyond the great varieties and they express the place um so just one one recommendation from my range there which would be very much an introduction to the style uh kind of at the entry to the style is is a wine called the search which is a grenache marsan roussan from the Vorpaderberg, made by trezan barnard um and it's at 10 pounds on shelf and this is very much this is almost to kind of give customers a chance to to try that style and then they can go and seek some of the top wines from david and nadia sardi and and and, and donovan Rale and so on um, so yeah, white Rome blends definitely. It would be remiss not to talk about Cabernet uh, and Bordeaux blends, uh, particularly from Stellenbosch, of course. There's so many fantastic examples. I think you know Stellenbosch has really become the home of Bordeaux varieties. But then I would also point to Syrah. We've mentioned Syrah briefly. Um, I think it has. Oh, it's already showing its huge potential in South Africa um, and, and particularly in terms of, of, of site expression. So whether it's the, 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 the top wines from the Swartland, from the likes of the Molyneux and, and Porsa Lehmberg and Buchanutzkleef down to the South Coast and down to what we're seeing in Elgin um, uh, and Elim. And it, there's so many, there's so many different expressions there that it's, it's really, truly exciting, certainly for all the Northern Rhone lovers. Um, and there's so many other things to mention. Pinot Noir from the Himalayana in the South Coast, Sanso, like beautiful, juicy, fragrant, and um, mm. fresh, approachable wines. There's, oh yeah, there is. There's really, yeah, it's a treasure trove to explore. There is, and I love. I haven't had that much of it, but whenever I've had a Cabernet Franc uh, from uh, South Africa, I'm very, very excited about that at the moment as well. Really That's delicious. That's a good point. Yes. Yeah, good. Glad you're on board as well. Um, in fact, we have a gold medal winner of yours. That's a Cab Frank uh, to mention at the end of the uh, of the hour as well. Um, let's um, turn to your other big area, and it is a big area in terms of the diversity of wines. My goodness me, um, Italy. Um, we featured Italy uh, for an hour recently when I spoke to Sarah Knowles, MW from the Wine Society, who you will know well, I'm sure. Tell us what excites you about Italian wine. I think it's it's almost exactly what you just talked about, the sheer diversity of Italian wine. It's complexity. That's almost what is so exciting. The fact that, especially when you're a bit of a geek and you love to sort of study and you love to read up on, you know, where great varieties came from. And that there's just, it is, as you say, it's huge. And it's sort of, end, it keeps you, end, if you're an endlessly curious person, it, it's the perfect subject matter, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, I think... Um, <laughs> what I really love it. So I'm, I'm a big fan of high acidity. So uh, as you know, Italian wines have that almost without exception. Um, and, I, and, and that sort of acidity, the vibrancy and the dynamism that brings to so many Italian wines is something that I, I, I really love. It, it means that they're great food wines, but, um, but just great thirst quenchers as well. And so, so yeah, so acidity being a factor. And then I think also, you know, you've alluded to it in terms of, of the diversity of grapes and styles, but that, that sense of discovery with Italy, you, you genuinely, you can have been working in the wine industry for 30 years, for 40 years, 50, and you will still discover something new in Italy. And, and that's, that is that is one, wonderful as a buyer. There's no chance of ever becoming tired or complacent there. And, and actually we've, um, so we have a range called Waitrose Loved and Found range, which is a, uh, basically showcases lesser known grape varieties, more unusual grape varieties. And um, Italy is just the best hunting ground for that. So I've had I've had quite a few different wines that have, have, have fallen into that range over the last few years. We've had a Cannonale de Sardinia, uh, most recently a Perricone from Sicily, currently a Frappato from Sicily. Um, and then launching actually just next month, I've got an Alborossa, which I imagine you haven't heard of before because I haven't heard of before. Um, no. <laughs> which is from Piemonte and is a so it's spelt like Barossa but A-L Alborossa before it and it is a cross of uh, Nebbiolo and Barbera so it, it, it has some of the perfume of Nebbiolo some of that sort of floral rose petal uh, profile but it has but the, the tannins are not as 
they're not quite as high and they're not quite as firm as, as Nebbiolos. They have some more of the softness of Barbera. So it makes them... Um, it makes a juicy uh, kind of earlier drinking accessible wine. And I'm, I'm really excited about that uh, landing on shelves soon. So yeah, mm. that, that sense of discovery in Italy is just, it makes it, um, it makes it really fascinating. Yeah, you've just mentioned one of my favourite grape varieties, actually, Frappato from oh. uh, Sicily. Just delicious. So light and crunchy and oh, yum. Anyway. Um, Perfect summer uh, red. Isn't it just with a, a light chill? Definitely. There must surely be an extent as a buyer with Italy uh, where you think, where the hell do I start? Because um, we've got, you know, I think at least 300 authorised kind of grape varieties that are exported from Italy. Uh, last time I looked, uh, you can't stock everything. So how do you choose what you are going to offer your customers? So... It is, it is difficult, you're quite right, especially as you, you know, when you're looking at a range, you want to try and represent, you know, you want to try and represent every region and certainly not every grape variety, but, but at least give every region a chance to sort of have its space in the range. I, I think basically, first of all, like the, the, the range, the, the, the core of the range has got to be built around those real key customer favourites. So um, it won't surprise you to know that, that a big chunk, a big focus is on the likes of Pinot Grigio, on Chianti. Over the last few years, Garvey has become a really significant sort of subcategory, as it were. And then again, also more recently, um, some of those southern southern Italian grape varieties, particularly Primitivo and um, Appassimento styles. So they, they would all, and, and Appassimento styles, both from the northeast and f wider from, from other regions. So that would almost be like your core and your building blocks that you need to ensure you've got the offer right on and you've got... Uh, you've got a, a number of sort of uh, quality tiers and price points uh, for your customers there. And then around that is where you can, so, so from my perspective, in that supermarket setting, around that is where you can sort of have the fun and and um, and, and bring some of the more eclectic, um, uh, lesser known uh, appellations um, and great varieties in. So I, 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 it's very difficult to compete with the wine society. Sarah's range is incredible. In fact, I just actually messaged her this morning to say I was really excited about the new Valtellina that she's launched, which I am going to be buying later. Um, but, but from a supermarket perspective, we would aim to have market leading breadth of range. So I've got everything from a Vernaccia de San Gimignano to an Etna Rosso to Montecuco, uh, to Tamarasso even from Piemonte so um so it, it, it's and it's kind of that can that can change sometimes I'll buy it in parcels meaning that I can therefore bring in a new parcel after 12 to 18 months and and keep that that's a way of introducing newness to the customer and keeping that kind of keeping the range fresh um sometimes the vintages themselves the quality of the vintages help you make those decisions so you know vintage like 2016 in piedmont well and frankly in tuscany as well would give me the opportunity to say i'm going to go quite big on barolo i'm going to have a couple of different um a different quality tiers maybe i'm going to buy a, a parcel of um reserva albeit i don't i'm not on 2016 reserva yet we're just just moving to 2015 but but so the vintages can help to lead some of those decisions and then i think really it, it, at the end at the end of the day my my job is to is to is to provide the, uh, my customers waitress customers with the wines that they want maybe they don't always know which wines they want but but, but to provide them with the styles and 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 give them some chance of exploration so i think it's staying really close to the wine styles that i know are doing well and then uh, introducing variations or, or different interpretations of those styles which will help them to explore but explore in a safer way so i don't know if that answered the question but there's there's mm. lots of different balls to juggle um uh, and um there's lots of opportunities to, to basically bring in newness and to help people explore the, 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 the vast but wonderful world of Italy. Yeah, it, it did answer the question, but it also underlined how uh, difficult uh, that actually is uh, to do that. But um, I'll tell you one thing that presumably um, isn't too difficult. You know that you have to stock Prosecco uh, because that has been an extraordinary success story um, in uh, the last decade or so. Some people in the trade can be a, a bit sniffy about it. And some have said for some time that the Prosecco bubble would burst. Um, is there any sign of that? There isn't, David. No, it's it's, uh, and I know that that has been sort of touted um, for I would say even a number of years. But that no, there isn't any sign of that. Um, demand is still incredibly high. Uh, the market, both within Waitrose and within the UK market. Uh, what what is what is really interesting is 
whether we're sort of at a crossroads or coming to a crossroads just from a, 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 an inflation perspective and a price perspective. Um, there hasn't been that much inflation coming through yet, as, a, as sorry, as in it's not been, you're not seeing it on the shelves, we are seeing it at, as retailers. It's, so Prosecco has so long been the affordable way to celebrate. You know, it, it has been that go-to, uh, it's been the go-to fears, but for an everyday occasion. Um, and as, as all of the inflationary pressures we're dealing with currently, from an energy perspective, basically from every perspective, as that starts to come through, what's going to be interesting to see is, is where the Prosecco still has its compelling hold over consumers when the retail prices do start to, to go up. Um, but there is certainly no sign of, of the need for that sort of fruity, slightly off dry, very approachable style of fizz there's no there's no sense of that stylistic need abating um and and it's very difficult to 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 kind of offer customers alternatives that sort of fit that bill um uh, you, we have tried fair you know we, we've had a sparkling pecorino which which did well but did nothing like prosecco volumes we had a sparkling from lake garda uh, we have a pinoletto we have various different iterations but it's just so hard to get the cook through that prosecco has um so it will be interesting to see how that unfolds over the next couple of years but but certainly at the moment the bubble doesn't seem to be bursting Mm, interesting. I do enjoy a pinoletto, actually. I, I think. Oh, me uh, too. Yeah, <laughs> great, great wines, um, and a, a really nice alternative, just ever so slightly different to uh, uh, prosecco as well. Um, something that's actually quite significantly different, uh, uh, certainly in terms of the perception of acidity, is English sparkling wine, and Waitrose has been very much um, behind English wine uh, more generally. I know it's not your portfolio specifically. Um, but uh, you'll still uh, be well aware of, of this uh, through what your colleagues are, are doing. Um, it's going great guns, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. And I was actually looking, so I did buy England for, uh, I think, just a couple of years, maybe even just 18 months. And I was actually lucky enough to be buying it um, uh, to see the results of the 2018 vintage from a still wine perspective, which was obviously oh, amazing. Wow. Um, yeah. 2022 obviously looks set to be similar, uh, but touch wood. Um, so yeah, England has been, England, as you say, Waitrose has championed English wines since way, probably since when I was born, you know, it's it's been it's been on our agenda since the early days, and we've had a really lovely representation um, of local producers and local stores. So we stock over a hundred English wines that's still and sparkling, but many of those wines will only be available in the ten to twelve stores that are most local to the vineyard. But yeah, so we have seen, and it's it's been on an upward trajectory for years, but we've really seen that accelerate over the last couple of years. And and last year, for example, was just huge um so close to 30 percent growth uh for english wine which was well ahead of total obviously wine growth was was significantly up as well but um but english wine was well ahead of that and i think it's it's i mean it's it's really fascinating it's fascinating from a both a still and a sparkling perspective obviously sparkling kind of having been the the darling um of of, of the last decade but I, I think that what we're seeing is customers are so much more aware now of English wine than they were. And some of that is through the kind of the great steps towards, uh, you know, tourism that, that, that many English wineries are kind of taking in terms of offering restaurants, accommodation, um, maybe glamping. All of this is kind of building up the awareness of English wine. And I also think, and I don't have the data, to, it's an anecdotal thought rather than uh, data driven, but I think that as we've seen particularly during the pandemic, a real focus on provenance, where food and drink comes from and wanting to do better for the environment, wanting to make the right food and drink choices for the environment. There's been that focus on local that there hasn't perhaps, been, or maybe that focus has been there on food for a while now, but maybe hadn't yet translated to wine. And I think that's what we're definitely seeing. I, I think, you know, because customers have to be prepared to spend more on a bottle of English wine generally. Um, than they are on other bottles of wine. So they have to want to do that. And it's a really competitive, you know, it's a, it, wine is a competitive market. So I, I think that, that that drive to try and buy more locally and support local is, is definitely a factor behind the, the sales growth. And then the final factor would of course be quality. Uh, that's, 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 that's come forward in leaps and bounds um, 
over the years. Uh, and I think, you know, we know that the best English sparkling wines, not that they have to compete with champagne, but that is the benchmark that we look at from a traditional method perspective. And they do, they do time and time again. Um, and and that customers are savvy. They know where to, they know, they go where the quality is. And, and that's definitely, mm. that is definitely driving buying decisions. Yeah, I, I'm sure you're right about uh, provenance as well, uh, but by the way, um, I, I kind of really feel that too. Uh, you mentioned there the environmental agenda, which is incredibly important. And how does that influence your job as a buyer? So in, well, I think in, in, in many, many ways, I think the biggest focus in the media for the last couple of years has been has been specifically around packaging and obviously specifically around glass bottles. Uh, and that's for very good reason. Glass is the biggest single contributor to a wine's carbon footprint. And then transportation is a close second. So uh, effectively, so there are so there are a number of things. Um, the first the first thing kind of signals Waitrose's commitment to it it was earlier this year we actually we actually created a new role we we um, formed a new role and recruited um someone for that role and so uh, barry dick uh, master of wine uh, joined us as our beers wines and spirits sourcing bulk sourcing manager sorry and that's specifically to focus on increasing the amount of wine that we source in bulk um from around the globe because we know that that has such an impact on the on the carbon footprint and waitress is uh, we are we, we've historically not shipped so much wine in bulk and we are significantly behind our supermarket competitors on that and and now i think there's a real imperative to look at that for wine which is being drunk um on the day of purchase on purchase on wine which is less than 10 pounds you know which is the vast majority of sales that wine can be shipped in bulk um can be packed in the uk to a really high quality and that can take a huge percentage of the wine's carbon footprint away so that is one thing that that barry is working on in conjunction with with each of the buyers and then the other aspect would be around glass bottles. It's 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 difficult, and it's not as uh, it's not as black and white as simply the weight of the glass bottle. It involve it's, it also includes what percentage of the glass is recycled, the source of the glass, the energy used for the glass manufacturing, how far the glass bottle has travelled to get to the producer. There's so many different aspects. So it's not as simple as a lighter bottle is better because if that lighter bottle has travelled from further than it's not necessarily but so we are in the process of understanding the glass supply chain much better than we ever had and within waitress we have packaging experts as well like clearly i'm not an expert on on glass manufacturing but there are there are the, the conversations can be had with the producers understanding what's the lightest bottle what's the highest percentage of recycled glass content we can have available to them in their particular setting it would be different in south africa compared to italy and there's lots of examples small examples of a Primitivo being offered to me in a 700 gram bottle and us looking at it and finding a 500 gram bottle which has a significant impact on therefore the amount of glass that's that's shipped over the over the course of a year on our entry level own label wines these are all bottled at the very lightest weight bottle that you can have so that's three four three four five grams to 360 grams and then we're working on putting maximum weight uh limits in place for the rest of the higher tiers of the own label range but i think it's just it's a lot more nuanced and sometimes it's presented in the media and ultimately what we need to do is work really closely with our producers to understand those supply chains um and collaboratively work on bringing carbon footprint down um so i think we're all of us uh retailers and and wine producers are sort of are very much at the beginning of that journey in terms of understanding our impact, how we can reduce emissions um, and, and yet still bring the same delicious high quality wine to, uh, to our customers. So yeah, work in progress, but really, really important. Yeah, and that's very interesting what you say about the, the, the nuances. Uh, I know I, I spoke to Jessica Julney uh, on the Drinking Hour um, a, a couple of months back uh, from Chateau Galoupe and, uh, and they've done a lot there to, to, to um, you know, explore uh, sustainability and, and it, she likens it to whack-a-mole. You know, you think you've, you've, you've sorted something and then something else pops up and, and someone says, ah, yes, but. Um, so that, uh, that, that is really interesting. Just out of interest, um, why are some um, bottles so heavy compared to others? Is it because... Um, those producers think that 
customers will think that it's better quality? I think there is definitely that that is definitely a factor. So it depends on uh, it. it, So it's a sales tool, isn't it? At the end of the day, the packaging is is part of it's part of the marketing mix. It's part of how you communicate what that product signifies to um, to a consumer. And I, I think that there are there are there are significant differences in markets. Now I don't I don't know much about the Chinese market, but I understand from 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 peers that 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 is a market where they do value a heavy bottle, and you know a heavy bottle and a large punt signifies quality. Um, uh, uh, similar in, in 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 some South American markets. So it's possibly I mean in those two examples they are I guess newer wine consuming markets than 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 the uk for example but it, it is it, it's a, it's a there's a balance to be struck between creating the image that you need to sell the wine at a certain price point and and not and then therefore risking sell not selling the wine so I, I, that's what producers are trying to navigate um and they're trying to uh, tailor that for specific markets obviously the scandinavian market being a market which is incredibly open-minded to alternative formats and lighter bottles bag and box tetra pack it, it, it is a market it is driven by different markets but i think that there are some incredible you know fine wine producers which undisputed fine wine producers that show that you can put your bottles in you put your wine sorry in in very lightweight bottles i think i think felton road are a fab example of where we are alta i think yeah. they use i think all of their bottles are no heavier than 450 or around 450 grams um which you know that's a clear signal if you've got high quality producers like that saying hey guys you don't need a one kilogram bottle to show that your wine is world class then that's that sets a really good example um for, for everyone else but it, it yeah it, it does depend on market and um and it, that has to be something that the producer considers um when they're looking at their sales and their carbon footprint i suppose so yeah it, it, it's uh the bottle really um you know, fundamental but there's there's so much else to it um talking of which um shelf appeal you know my partner um i'm forever having a pop at him when he picks out a really pretty looking label and says oh this is, looks nice and i'm like you don't know what's in the bottle you're just looking at the label um but of course um he's a a, a real consumer that's what consumers do isn't it of course it is yes and 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 the visual appearance of a bottle is I would say even more important in the supermarket than in almost in well than 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 in other settings because an independent merchant you are always going to have someone on hand to talk you through the wine and and that isn't always the case uh, in a supermarket even in Waitrose with our specialists they're they're not in every store at every hour that the store is open so I think that appearance you you need shelf standout um as as you said that the range or the selection can be sometimes overwhelming in terms of scale so how do you pop on shelf and how do you communicate to your target customer it is it is really important um, that a range of approaches work obviously it depends on the style of wine and, and the price point i think the waitrose customer is quite classic in in their preferences so you will see again it depends which country you're shopping but certainly within italy and france we have quite a lot of traditional and, and more classic labels but that said then our my my well actually our top selling red wine is an italian wine is a primitivo and that is uh, this 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 beautiful bold really bright modern label it's sort of like an ambery orange color it's it's very it, it's very contemporary it's certainly not classic it's not classic italian so th- there are many <laughs> there are many different labels that can work and um and 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 it's a case of i certainly the approach that i take when i'm i'm looking at my range i'm kind of looking at standing in front of it as a consumer and looking at the shelves and 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 trying to create some uh, uh trying to create some uh, diversity in terms of what you can see so it's not all it's not a it's not wallpaper basically but but it, it is difficult because how how that all fits together what what where a wine sits on shelf what it sits next to is is we merchandise by price so you don't always have control of, of the of how the labels um uh, sit next to each other but it, it it is it absolutely can make or break a wine and there are i have examples from my buying career of wine labels having changed uh, not necessarily at my instigation but maybe sometimes um uh, having changed and, and you know losing a third of your volume sales or conversely Gosh. gaining 50 percent of sales so it definitely as you say drives the purchasing decision for a lot of consumers yeah i bet um i can't have um, a leading buyer on without uh, talking about 
current trends. Um, so not just within your uh, portfolio of, of Italy and South Africa, but across the board, uh, what are you and your colleagues seeing as uh, wine trends at the moment? So waitress is quite interesting because sometimes our trends are not exactly in line with market trends, but I'll, I'll kind of, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll talk through some of those. That also makes it more fun as well. Um, yeah. but I would say one of, so one of the biggest trends uh, looking at the last couple of years, um, and maybe even further out than that, has been the growth of rosé, rosé wine, driven by, well, certainly within Waitrose driven by Provence um, and dry pale pale styles but there is just there is it is quite exceptional to see how rapidly rosé is growing for us it was the single biggest growth category um, for wines within in 2020 in that 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 first Covid year and it continues apace um, looking at it uh, looking at it more recently that that the, the trend towards that it is also the category within wine sorry that's driven a lot of the premiumization you know where the average price point of Provence sits and it is much higher than the average bottle price of wine that customers buy in the UK so it's um it's quite a positive story for wine overall if it means people become more comfortable with spending that bit more on a bottle so rosé hugely strong uh, it, within the UK market and this is echoed in Waitrose and the wider market Portugal has been a, a significant trend it's it obviously from a small base but it is in huge growth and you know we've talked about Italy and it's it's diversity of indigenous grapes um I was recently in Portugal and and they uh, I'm not going to remember the figures but Portugal has more because it's obviously has lower hectareage it has more indigenous grape varieties per hectare than any country in the world it has huge diversity so I think buyers there obviously it's famous for blends but there's 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 this opportunity to explore and introduce new um introduce new grape varieties but but particularly the styles bold fruity red wines sometimes with a little bit of residual sugar is very much what um the mainstream consumer is looking for and I think Portugal's having great success with that you asked me about Prosecco earlier. Sparkling continues to be really strong in the overall marketplace. Um, even this year, you know, we are obviously facing difficult year on year figures because last year was three months or so of the year was it was lockdown and supermarket sales off trade sales were booming. Um, so even with those difficult comparisons, uh, sparkling led by Prosecco is is doing really, really well um, in double digit growth. And then what's really interesting, actually, kind of the, the convert, not the converse, but the, the opposite to Prosecco is that is that champagne is doing incredibly well and, and even more so in Waitrose. So there is this sort of, I think it struggled during the first um, the first three quarters of 2020, well, the first the second and third quarter of 2020 with 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 um, the pandemic. But then we saw this massive bounce in the fourth quarter where I think everyone just I think they just got to the point of saying, you know, we need to just celebrate for the sake of celebrate. We need to celebrate life. Let's yeah, just celebrate. Absolutely. Sod it. Let's celebrate. Yeah. Let's, let's just make sure there's always champagne in the fridge. And we really saw it. We have a huge market share for champagne and that just it rocketed. So and what's really interesting this year to date, although um, obviously the cost of living crisis is starting to impact, um, we are seeing growth. The, the biggest growth in champagne is coming from vintage champagne. And from rosé champagne as well, actually, which echoes the rosé trend we were talking about earlier. Um, so, so certainly, well, people are still buying; they're buying more vintage champagne than they were last year, which is great. Um, yeah, I, I bet. Gosh, <laughs> a, a lot then. In 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 short, I have to ask you this question as well because we always ask our guests this: uh, What's your desert island wine? Oh well, actually, continuing on from champagne, <laughs> I should probably say English sparkling. I shouldn't say no. I was I would probably say champagne because I feel as though you can drink champagne at any time of the day. Um, obviously, not to advocate breakfast drinking, but it is a great breakfast wine. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like if you'd had a hard or a hot day, you know, a glass of champagne would revive you. You know, it's it's always it's instantly uplifting, isn't it? So yeah. yeah Do you have champagne. a favourite, by the way? Oh, I well. So if I were to have a house champagne, my house champagne would be would be Charles Heidsick non-vintage. Actually, I just think it's one of the best non-vintage oh, yeah. um, wines. And then I love Marie Coton um, for a, as a as a grower champagne. I just I absolutely love those wines. They're really um, yeah, really elegant terroir driven wines. So, oh, yeah. Okay, well, it's going to be a, a whiff of luxury to your desert island. And that's that's great. Uh, it's a great <laughs> pleasure to, to talk to you uh, and uh, to have your sort of enthusiasm on the air. It's always uh, wonderful. Victoria, uh, we could talk for hours, but we can't. So thank you so much for joining The Drinking Hour and sharing your experience. Thank you so much. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode. 
in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Okay, it's time to nose into the IWSC Hall of Fame for some medal-winning wines to wrap up. And this week, we're focused entirely on Waitrose for obvious reasons. We're going to start with a wine from South Africa uh, and therefore one from Victoria's stable, uh, Gabriel's Kloof, the landscape series, Cabernet Franc 2020. This won a gold medal and 95 points. I was actually on the judging panel for this one. I can remember it well. Uh, I'm a fan of Cab Frank from South Africa, as I was mentioning just now. Uh, alongside um, uh, veteran buyer Gerard Barnes and sommelier Andrea Altavilla. Uh, it was actually judged in London, this one, with John Hoskins MW in charge. Some of the South African wines, most of them, were judged actually in the market in South Africa. Here's what we said, charming and vibrant with all the guilty decadence of swooping the last syrupy Morello cherry from the jar. Sumptuous, complex spices of tobacco leaf, nutmeg, red earth and a whiff of rare steak. Outstanding. There you go. Here's another medal winner from that same judging session. Uh, this is the wine we were talking about earlier on in the context of uh, employee ownership, by the way. So look out for this. Molyneux Great Heart Red Blend 2019, a fantastic wine from Svartland, uh, a blend of Syrah, Tinto, Barocca and Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, I also recall this from the Waitrose press tasting, as I said. It got a silver medal. Here's what we said. A distinctive wine with fabulous array of wild berries, blackcurrant, blackberry and strawberry, notes of celery salt and lavender with plush, savoury tannins. Here's a, an inexpensive wine from that blueprint range that uh, performed strongly, uh, winning a silver medal this year. Waitrose and Partners Blueprint Cote de Rhone Village 2020. The judges, including John Hoskins MW, Master Sommelier Issa Bal and Ben Llewellyn said this. A polished, classy wine full of sleek red fruit and spice. Boasts a masterful balance of both sweet and dry on the palate. Highly enjoyable and very drinkable. As regular listeners will know, I do love a sherry. Here's a really strong silver, 93 points. Made for Waitrose by Emilio Lestau. Waitrose number one, Amontillado, Don Gaspar, non-vintage. Uh, the judges, two MWs amongst them, Mick O'Connell and Matthew Forster, said this. Pale in colour, lightly marine nose with delicate salinity overlaying caramelised pecan and walnut. The palate is firm and focused with quite a restrained style. Fresh, clean and sparkling finish. And talking of finishes, let's round off with a whiskey, an outstanding one at that. Waitrose rich and warming three-year-old blended Scotch whiskey uh, from White and Mackay, a gold medal winner, 98 points for this. The panel, including Richard Patterson, OBE, known as The Nose, um, and Billy Abbott, another great uh, whiskey expert. They were judging blind, of course. They said this, a profusion of flavours, the touches of baked apple and spice, the marzipan richness, the earthy notes and buttery texture, the chocolate and sour apples all culminate in a classy finish that's long and gently peaty. And that's it. Time for a classy finish from us. My thanks to uh, Victoria. Thank you to you for listening as well. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.